1972, a crack commando unit was sent to a liturgical prison by a canonical court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security diocesan stockade to the ecclesial underground. Today, still wanted by the Vatican, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, then you should listen to Libra Cristo War College. Wednesday War College, welcome. My name is Jesse Romero, Kyle Clement. This is uh, one of, uh, the top member of Father Chad Ripperger's exorcism team. He's here every other Wednesday. Welcome, Kyle. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for being here. Hey, good morning, Jess. Thank you very much for having me. To Kyle, today's the feast of St. Joachim and St. Anne. Uh, pray for us. According to a second century tradition, Anne and Joachim conceived Mary as a gift from God after Years of infertility and devotion to St. Anne dates around to the year 550 AD when Emperor Justinian built a church in her honor. And St. Anne is frequently depicted in Christian art, teaching the Blessed Mother to read the scriptures. And so we pray St. Joachim, St. Anne, a Blessed Virgin Mary, pray for us. <clears throat> Kyle, you know what? I haven't even asked you. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I kind of want interested to hear your take on the movie Sound of Freedom. Uh, we've talked since the movies come, come out, but I haven't asked you any particulars. G give me your analysis. I'm sure you've watched the movie. Uh, in I think there's a whole lot of spiritual warfare in there. What can you tell the audience about something, uh, that really, uh, stuck out to you after 20 years of being on an exorcism team, uh, being probably the most literate, uh, lay Catholic in spiritual warfare. When you watch that movie, what components of spiritual warfare jumped out at you? Well, Jess, I, I must admit, I, I have not seen the movie. Oh, no. Um, no. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I retract no, that I'm, statement. <laughs> I'm familiar having talked with, with some people that have seen the movie. Um, but I, I think that the societal reaction, the two things I'd like to comment on yeah. what I ha am familiar with is a societal reaction to it. Um, you, you see clearly, this is one of those litmus tests where the middle falls away. There's no middle ground. And I think it's very interesting. There's a certain segment of society, their reaction and immediately trying to discount um, not only the veracity uh, of the, of the subject matter, but the idea that there are people in high places, if you will, that are involved in this. This is something that has been known to exorcists for years, for centuries, as a matter of fact. Um, mm. And this, this, like all things uh, that are true, is finally coming to light. Um, one of the things about working in this is, um, in this area, is we deal with um, we deal with some of the people who are possessed as a result by the diabolical who are possessed as a result of these activities. And um, these, um, it, and what you find is over hundreds and, uh, or even thousands of, of diabolical affliction cases, but hundreds of possessions related to this um, particular area being done around the world, there is a commonality and a universality to what the demons are saying and what comes out in these solemn sessions 
that can't be ignored because there's no way these people know each other. They're not talking about trying to quote, get their story together, but you've been in law enforcement enough to know, uh, you know, we, we stop 10 little gang members and we separate them and you can tell pretty quick by separating them and and listening to what they're saying, you can tell what's truth and what's not truth. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Same thing. Right. Yeah. Precisely. This is how you test the veracity of the demon. And there's going to be some theological uh, basis for it. Uh, there's going to be some basis in truth, sacrificial theology, etc. But here's one of the things that is, is very, very sobering that has come out in this. Um, so first and foremost, listen to the language of how they want to make something either socially acceptable or make it a mental issue or they want to they want to not use the word deviancy they do not want to use the word evil so when you hear the word minor attracted person even when you hear the word pedophile this these are forms of senation or senating um the term predator this is uh, this is a form of cannibalism. This is a form of of uh, human on human violence and depravity. And it is, um, for instance, homosexuality. Thirty years ago was a deviancy in the DSM five. Now it's not, and so it's in fact being normalized. This is hallmark um, methodology of the demon. The next overlay is that. With regard to uh, priest scandal, whatever you want to call it, once a man is ordained a priest of the Most High God, and his hands are consecrated for the confection of the Eucharist, the, the body and blood of our Lord, once he is ontologically configured to God both in corpus, in, in body and in spirit, then de facto everything he does with his hands is ritualistic. So when he puts his hands on a child, when he puts his hands on uh, any person in a way that is not requisite with his uh, priesthood, he is de facto engaging in Satanism. That is the idea that sex can be consensual or that these deviancies can somehow be consensual. That misses the whole point is that once that man does that, then it is uh, it's ritualistic meaning it calls a demon it summons a demon wow let me ask you another question um yeah you, you see the country split on this hollywood politicians are saying this is QAnon. this is conspiracy theory uh and half of the country is saying wow these guys from sound of freedom i think they uh they they picked the scab with a lot of a, a lot of the rich and famous a lot of the elites um this is probably something that's normal. Uh, th- this is basically a probably standard oper- operating procedure for the diabolical. What I'm maybe I, what I mean by that is that their preferred target is children. Correct. Precisely. It and and children are are two archetypes. Children are there's two reasons. One is innocence, and so virginal innocence before the age of reason is of great power in the the misuse of it is of great power in the diabolical realm because this is one of the charges of masculinity is to protect and provide 
for these little ones, these innocent ones. Jesus spoke about it. It better a millstone be tied around their neck than, than to cause one of these little ones to fall. And so the protection, the nurturing, um, the innocence of those children, all of that is involved. And then the other aspect is they are a physical manifestation of procreation, mm-hmm. God's love for man and the ability to procreate. They are a physical manifestation of that. So the demon who cannot create, cannot procreate, can only corrupt and destroy, deform and destroy, then that's precisely where he is attacking God by attacking us, by attacking the children. That makes sense. In fact, uh, <clears throat> I think uh, that sounds like a phrase right out of, out of the movie Nefarious, what you just said at the end, that the demons cannot create, they can only destroy and uh they seek to go after us by going after, uh, they, they seek to go after God by going after us because they can't do nothing to him. Scott, Kyle, let me switch gears here a little bit. And there's a, a very powerful, well-known verse that's prayed after the Latin Mass. Uh, the priest, after he gives a dismissal in the Latin Mass, he'll, he'll proclaim John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and he'll do it in Latin. And uh, my, my question is, what is it about John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14? Uh, I've heard you say before that it's particularly effective in, uh, in tormenting demons. Why is that? What's the theology behind that? So it's a great question, and it's a very accurate observation. So um, before we get into specifics, let's put a big canvas wash or a 30,000 foot view or whatever analogy you want to use, but there's some principles. And so when you spoke about its usage in liturgy, so what it, um, happens immediately before the pro- proclamation of the last gospel in the Latin mass, what has just happened is the priest visualized the priest is facing the altar And he makes a very large circular motion with both hands. And then he turns to the people. And then he conveys the blessing. So imagine gathering the merits as he circles his arms. He gathers the merits, pulls them to his chest, turns around, and then distributes the merits of the Mass through that blessing. Mm. Wow. So in... In this moment, in this moment, we are now armed. You've just been armed. You've just been given uh, your bandoleros, your your words. You've just been given your arms, and you stand at the ready. Then what happens is he proclaims. He steps to the left side, the gospel side of the altar. If you're looking at the crucifix. You're on the, this is called the gospel side or the church side, because this is the side of Christ that was pierced. Do you see the cross above? Yes. Hold okay, that thought, so kind of hold that thought. good stuff, good stuff. Hold that thought. Whoa, you just got it. That's a cliffhanger moment. We're talking with Kyle Clement. He's breaking down John chapter one, verses one to 14. The theology behind it. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
Wednesday War College, Jess Romero, Kyle Clement. We're talking all things spiritual warfare. Kyle, <clears throat> the question I asked you, and just for those that are just tuning in right now, I don't want them to miss it because this is really, really, uh, this is red meat. This is red meat Catholicism. I asked you about John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. This is a, uh, a Bible reading that's done after the Latin Mass, right after the final blessing. And here's what you told us. I just want to make sure that the audience lists, uh, that's just tuning in right now. <clears throat> you said that the priest faces the altar. He makes a big circle with his hands. He turns to the people. He gives a blessing. And he distributes the merits of the Mass through this final blessing. So the lady has been armed and we're standing at the ready. You want to pick it up from there? Yes. Um, and so we're standing at the ready. And then he steps to, um, which were what would be for us the left side of the altar, but for him is the right side of Christ. Uh, if you, the crucifix is hanging there above the altar, and so visualize, if you will, the pierced side of our Lord, which flowed forth blood, gut, blood and water, which gushed forth from the side of Jesus. The birth of the church would be spilling upon the priest and upon the gospel uh, in this spatial theology. And so from that, he then proclaims, in Latin, but the translation, we're, we're called to know this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing that came to be came to be without Him. If you know no other scripture by heart, it should be this one. And it goes on, but what this is, and what the church fathers have always seen, is this is the creation account from the spiritual perspective. Listen to the words. They are the exact same words that are the very first words of Genesis. In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in, in Genesis. In the beginning, God created. So what we're seeing and what we're being called to is this is St. John relating the spiritual recreation, our, our creation of the earth, from the Christocentric perspective, the Word is Christ. And so in the first creation account, the focal point is God the Creator. In the second creation account is the Word, the means and medium by which not only are we created, but we are sustained. And so from a spiritual warfare standpoint, when you go to the solemn rite, the solemn rite, starts with uh, some psalms and some recounting of, um, through prayer, some recounting of the victories of good over evil. And the very first um, that the, the priest approaches and gets in close proximity, it's in the rubric, now he reads over the possessed person these selections from the gospel, very first one. And here's what happens. Saying this, this is the rubric, this is in red, in the solemn rite of exorcism of 1614, the priest signs himself and the possessed on the brow, the lips, and the breast. That's the exact same thing that we do when we're acknowledging that this is the gospel, that we're about to hear the, the gospel. And then he begins. And so this is a priest of the Most High God who has just made physical contact with the possessed, and he starts... He's, he signed the cross on the brow, the lips, and the breast of the Nergaman, 
And then he begins, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. This is one of the reasons that, the, for several reasons, these are some of the many reasons that the demon reacts. But this is the opening punch. And so what happens is you've fought, you've been in the ring. There's a little bit of circling. There's a little bit of sizing up that is happening during the Psalms. Then there's two prayers of adjur adjuration. That's, again, the kind of grappling sign uh, we haven't touched yet. Um, and the priest says, I command thee, unclean spirit, whoever thou art, along with all the, your, your associates who have taken possession of this servant of God, that by the mysteries of the incarnation, passion, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the descent of the Holy Spirit, by the coming of our Lord into judgment, this is the exorcist straight onto the demon, thou shalt tell me some sign or make sign of thy name and the day and hour of thy departure. I command thee moreover to obey me to the letter. I, though unworthy, am a minister of God. Neither shall thou be emboldened to harm in any way this creature of God, nor the bystanders, nor any of their possessions. And so this is the referee, no kicking, no gouging, no hitting below the belt. <laughs> Remember, protect yourself at all times. And now it's game on. There's no more staring down. There's no more making faces. And so the priest comes out and punches him right in the nose. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Mm. So these wow. are the dynamics of how it's used in exorcism and in spiritual warfare. Now back to the Mass. So once the final gospel is read, this is our, our mission. And so if, if you look at the holy sacrifice of the Mass, the end of it as a, as a military briefing and sending forth, then what happens is at this point, the priest now descends the altar. He comes down off of the altar. He turns and faces. So now as he's come down off the Padilla, off the third step, he's now rejoined the populace. He's now rejoined us. He's no longer separated from us. He's no longer acting in persona Christi. He's now stepped off of the altar. He kneels and the rest of the remainder of the prayers at the foot of the altar. Three Hail Marys, the Our Father, the St. Michael. And at that point, he puts on his hat, his zucchetto. He puts it on, and now he goes forth, and we follow him into battle. Hmm. I love it. Wow, I love all the military metaphors. That, uh, that, that, that's, uh, that's the language that really uh, <laughs> is going to get men back to the church, <coughs> not the pastel Catholicism that we see in many places today. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff, Kyle. I like that. Yeah. So you said that the, yeah, the solemn rite starts with, you said psalms and some other prayers, uh, but, but that was very, I like what you said that the, then the priest signs the possess in the forehead, their lips and the, and the breast, uh, and the forehead. And then he proclaims John one verses one to 14. I like the way he said, he goes, this is a priest punching him right in the nose. Uh, yes, it's game on that. That's, that's game on right there. Correct. It absolutely is. And, and, uh, as you you know, as you read through this gospel, it's pure theology. It's it's just absolute pure theology, and it's the re, it's a, it's the creation account from a, a spiritual perspective. But if you if you read this, I want to read one two lines here that usually get a reaction. So it's it's continued to talk about uh, Christ. Talks about John the Baptist comes. Man was sent from God, whose name was John. This man came for a witness, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then we go down, and he says. Um, Who was born? 
not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then everybody genuflects. Everybody um, goes to their knees. And then the words, while we're still on our knees, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This is kryptonite to the demon because this is Christ among us. This is the reality of Christ. Now, I want to make a very, very strong point here. There was a systematic removal of this genuflection, this kneeling, and it is not present in the Novus Ordo. Correct. It is yep. not. It is not present. And you can track prelates across the country by how they deform the liturgy. If you track the current Archbishop, Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago around the West, he directed his parishioners diocesan-wide when he was a bishop in various places. You do not genuflect here, and you stand at the Agnus Dei. Mm-hmm. These, yep. are, these are not options. This is malicious deformation of liturgy and reverence. Yeah, and this was done uh, woo, back in the 1970s uh, by Archbishop Bonini's commission on the liturgy. So this goes way back. This was uh, <clears throat> this was the modernist infiltration back into the church, and nobody's repaired the damage. They've just allowed it to happen. Uh, again, you you see the, the the vast difference between the Latin Mass and the Novus Ordo Mass on those two points that you just mentioned right there. I, I've noticed that for years. And I've noticed, I said, okay, yeah, somebody uh, <clears throat> somebody uh, has taken out some of the power of the Mass and the postures of the lay people uh, and even, you know, praying on our knees by uh, by modifying these two sections. Kyle, you mentioned that in J- this that this gospel, John 1, verses 1 to 14, this is pure theology when you read it. Uh, uh, and then you said that the demon, you get a reaction from the demon... Uh, you said it's like kryptonite to the demon, especially when, is it, did you say especially when we genuflect or just the whole 14 verses in itself is kryptonite to the demon? Because it's it's talking about the creation to come from the perspective of Christ. So while the whole thing is abhorrent to him, the, the solar plexus pl- punch is the word became flesh and dwelt among okay. us. <laughs> so and, and here's, and here's. Well, I mean, if you're talking about a if you're talking about a punch combination, you're setting up for either uppercut, solar plug. You're you're setting up for one punch, which really does some damage. It's not just the random raining of blows. Everything that you've said, everything that's been said, is correct. But when you set it up for, um, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and then we genuflect. We it drives this. Truth dry, should drive us to our knees. Um, yeah, this—that's the moment because that is the moment that the demon fell. That is the moment that he ceased to become that he ceased being an angel and became a demon. Is his reaction to the word made flesh? Wow. And so it's just a reminder again. It's just a reminder of. Wow, this is when we were kicked out of heaven right here. <laughs> Verses 13 and 14. This is a reminder of what God has fired, as uh, we saw in that old uh, TV series with Donald Trump in The Apprentice. You're fired. Uh, th- this is <laughs> Verses thir- verses 13 and 14 is where they got fired, right? 
That's exactly right. That is precisely right. And, and, uh, you know, I think that there's some things that we, especially as men can do in our domestic church. Um, this is, you know, shades of proclaiming the Angelus at six noon and six and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That drives us to our knees. Our knee makes contact with the ground. Where is Kyle? Um, if we do not. Okay. We lost you for a second. Go ahead. We lost you for about 10 seconds. Kyle. Pick it up. Go ahead. Okay. So um, this is, this is what we can do in our domestic church is when you pray the Angelus at six noon and six, be sure your knee comes all the way to the earth. And this is, you intone this, you order your life to this incontrovertible truth. Incidentally, it is this moment that it is the most pivotal moment in all the cosmos, all of creation. Even look at how they're wanting to reorder the calendar because uh, everything hold, was either. Hold that, thought, DC, be, be hold that thought. Hold that thought, my friend. We'll be right back. Stick around. Just from Eric Clement, Wednesday War College. Wednesday War College, Jess Romero, Kyle Clement, talking about all things spiritual warfare. Kyle, there's two terms that are used, and I want you to define them for the audience. Uh, there's some uh, email question. Uh, the term is extraction and liberation. Okay. Working in the Los Angeles County Jail for years, there was times when you had very belligerent inmates, very... Re- very recalcitrant, bellicose inmates that had to go to court and court. So we would have to put on our our, uh, our riot gear and we'd have to go and do what's called a, uh, a cell extraction. We'd have to forcibly take the guy out, the inmate out, and forcibly handcuff him and forcibly put him in a, uh, a black and white van or a bus and forcibly take him to the courthouse, sometimes carry him in. Now, there's other times, most of the times we didn't have to do that. Most of the times, 99.9999% of the times, uh, the inmates uh, just liberate themselves. The officer goes in front of the, uh, the, uh, their jail cell. We have the key. We say, you've got a court date today. Uh, be ready in two minutes. We open up the jail cell. There's three or four officers and a sergeant, and the inmates walk out single file with their hands in their pocket, and they're liberated from their jail cell, and they go to court and uh, and get their due sentence. So I've seen kind of the difference between liberation and extraction from a physical uh, law enforcement point of, se- point of view, but give it to us from a spiritual warfare point of view. Define these terms. What are they? So you're your analogy or your observation is directly applicable to the spiritual and it has to do with the reaction to authority. And so in the extraction, they're challenging your authority. They're making you um, exercise your authority in a corporal or in a physical way. And the other one, um, they recognize your authority in the speech and what you say. Um, and then they yield to it. And so I think those principles are, they're universal. So for, for instance, an extraction would involve the use of uh, sacramentals, the stole, relics, 
corporal means. Liberation, uh, once the priest has, if you crack a possession case, once we're into the um, what we call the penitentiary phase, then the demon is very, very compliant. He simply does what the priest says. Um, but it doesn't start that way. And so what you find is even the most prison breaks a person and it breaks their will. And so over a period of time, you've seen this with the, the most ardent of prisoners, you know, uh, they walk in with a live sentence They're 20 years old. I can do that standing on my head. You know, they're bold. They're, they're full of it. And by the time that guy is 80 years old, you got a whole different uh, perspective. And so the demon actually ages and is tormented and suppressed, uh, subjected to the period, to the uh, power, the authority of the priest and the power of Christ over a period of time. So this is part of his reparation. This is part of divine justice. And extraction, again, is going to require some corporal agents such as relics, stole, holy water, sacramentals, these kind of things. But it also indicates if the demon is having to be is being obstinate and you're having to go to the method of extraction forcing, then there's a pretty strong psychological compatibility with the host, with the human. And over a period of time, you isolate the demon by by um, disengaging this enmeshment of psychologies. And so he's truly isolated he and the human no longer have anything in common except for this place where they are, um, this flesh uh, that belongs to the human and that the demon is relegated to it. In the most um, most possession cases, um, it starts with the language of extraction and, and uh, it starts with that. And by the end, it is very much the language of liberation where the demon is compliant. In fact, he's wanting to go and he's often held there by God for a period of time uh, in order for the human to do uh, penance and reparation. And okay. To, Kyle, and, Kyle, repeat and that again. You said, you said most possession cases start with ex, start as, ex, um, as extraction, but towards the end end in liberation. Uh, that was a... Uh, that was a very important point. If you can explain that again. Yeah. So the, there's a, a strong psychological compatibility between the demon and the human at the beginning of the, of the series of exorcisms. And as that is uh, addressed and, and they become disengaged, disenmeshed, if you will, the human pursuing holiness, the demon unable to pursue any different path then you start to get distance and separation. And to the extent that the demon is being isolated from the human, at some point the demon actually for the last second is wanting. Yeah. It, he's wanting to get out. Yeah. We call that the penitentiary segment or phase and it, it becomes a penitentiary for the demon. God is allowing, not only allowing, he's forcing the demon to remain out of a function of justice um, against the demon and out of a mercy to the human to be allowed to do reparation and offer their suffering. Good stuff. So, Kyle, let me ask you a question about extraction. Um, extraction doesn't mean necessarily mean liberation. What I mean by that is, let's just say a person that's diabolically afflicted goes with their, their Protestant minister they go to a prayer group and they feel a lot better after they feel they may even feel like if something left their body. Uh, the question is, uh, 
is it possible, let's say, for a Protestant minister or for a prayer group to extract maybe lower level demons, but the possessing demon remains that they're not going to be able to uh, bring liberation from the higher level demons because they don't have the authority to do so. And sometimes it requires an institutional response. Is that true? It's absolutely right. And what we've come to, uh, to find, be able to articulate is if the demon is there through an institutional means, in other words, if he's there through a rite or a ritual, then it will require a rite or a ritual to get him out. Um, it's going to, because there was a formality in the, in the sin, there was a formality in the, um, in the way the demon was there. Now, often what's, what, what you're describing is what we call conscription. It's not classic, uh, possession and where it mocks the sacrament of confirmation, um, and also the sacrament of baptism, but it more closely mocks the sacrament of confirmation where a satanic priest or, or presider lays hands and calls a demon down into a person. And we've had cases where this is actually happening in charismatic prayer groups where some one or more of their practitioners is involved in not only habitual mortal sin, but practices of witchcraft, Wicca, other things, uh, crystals, various other new age practices they don't see themselves as a practitioner or a priestess or an acolyte, but the diabolical certainly do. And so when they place their hands on someone, often this is a moment of insertion. Wow. That's, that's what's called also demon, demonic transference, right? Correct. And so it is transference. And so the person laying hands is, is the agent. Uh, of the transference. Now it can work in reverse as well, because if someone presents themselves as an exorcist and has the, uh, says they have the ability to extract demons and they lay their hands on this person, well, the demon may very well honor. Yeah. You, you got the ability to extract buddy. And now I'm in your pocket. And so we see that work. What people don't realize is the laying on of hands and certain prayers and postures are priestly postures. And the demon says that is right and ritual. When you act as a priest, then you are invoking right and ritual and a formality. And so they they really stand on those rights. It's not that those rights are absolute, but there's a psychological compatibility. And there is a, if a person is willing to see themselves as a priest or a priestess, um, then the demon will certainly encourage that. The charismatic renewal in the in the Catholic Church is we right with this idea this of tell people how they can get a how, how they can listen to you, uh, what events you got coming up, uh, the l- website where they can uh, access information. Thank you, Jesse. And so go to www.montemontechristo.net, and that uh, will give you all our conferences, retreats. We are going to be doing a Fullness of Truth conference. Uh, Father Ripker and I will be doing that conference, and uh, Dan Snyder's at that conference. That's in Texas uh, on Feast of the Archangels, uh, end of September. Awesome. Kyle, for the next, uh, the, the next final to the book, Deliverance Prayers for Laity, we're now in a section... It's on page 55, where the section of of, uh, of, of the book 
title to, to share with us component to these to the Holy Spirit and if you can give us kind of like a little uh, uh, a little exegesis a little explanation as to the role of the Holy Spirit in spiritual warfare and go through some of these prayers veni creator spiritus we have uh, after that they have the tedeum uh, if we can just go through those prayers and uh then we'll take it next time we're on. We'll talk about the prayers of the Blessed Virgin Mary that we have there. We have some beautiful prayers to, to Our Lady. Uh, prayers of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Salve Regina, Subtum Presidium. We'll do that next time. But for now, I just would like to get into the, the theology of the Holy Spirit. These two prayers, Veni Sancti Spiritus and Veni Creatore Spiritus, how this relates to spiritual listening to Wednesday War College, Jess Romero, Kyle Clement. Hope you're enjoying uh, We're here every Wednesday with the team from Liber Christa. We either have Dr. Dan Schneider or we have Kyle Clement. Sometimes we have both. And as you see here, uh, from some just from some of the conversation, you see that uh, you're getting some, some real Catholic red meat here on Wednesdays. Wednesday War College, we'll be right back. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. Wednesday War College, just Romero, Kyle Clement. Kyle, let's take a look at the, these prayers of the Holy Spirit. A lot of people are wondering, okay, uh, this, these, uh, this deliverance prayers for the lady, beautiful prayers. Where does the Holy Spirit come into all of this in relation to spiritual warfare? It's a great question and a very, very misunderstood area because I think modernly this is the, the third person of the Trinity is the one that is the most misunderstood, maligned, and false information given especially through modernist and relativist practices it's absolutely blasphemous to classify the third person of the holy trinity as some type of wild unpredictable animal um, that comes and goes where he wants this is not catholic and so to understand the holy spirit as he was un as he is understood in traditional catholicism the definitive work is the sanctifier by archbishop luis martinez we're currently doing a book study on that on monte cristo and you can access that book study uh online but what mark what uh, Archbishop Martinez says, and again, this is one of these classic works that is written pre-1955. 1955, for the Catholic Church, liturgical manuals and other things is a, is a key pivotal point for things that are written uh, after that liturgically and, and especially about the third person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they're dubious at best. And so Archbishop Martinez wrote definitively about the Holy Ghost in the book, The Sanctifier. And to give you an idea, just to read some chapter headings, the first thing he starts with is the premise that the Holy Spirit leads us to holiness. Now, again, this echoes back to, to chapter 6 in John, uh, John's Gospel. When Jesus is speaking and he says, no one, uh, no one comes to the Father unless 
the Father beckons. So this medium of beckoning, this medium of grace between creature and creator, this is the Holy Spirit. This is the action of the Holy Spirit. And so Archbishop Martinez says he leads us to holiness. Then once we acknowledge this relationship, he becomes our delightful guest, then our supreme director. And then he begins to work on our soul to transform us in, into Christ, to being Christ-like. And what does that mean? It means the acceptance of mission. It means the acceptance of the our role in the economy of salvation. And so it doesn't mean modernly and evangelically that he is a, a comforter for the purpose of, of uh, taking the rough edge off of God, if you will. He is, he is the one who ministers, emboldens us so that we may uh, complete mission, not the one who changes mission. Um, and so in the um, Venti Spiritus Sanctus, uh, it, come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. What does that really mean? Fire consumes. This is the sacred heart of Jesus. This is the burning bush. This is So the Holy Spirit has always been de depicted as this purifying fire. This is back to what um, Archbishop Martinez says. He leads us to holiness. He's our delightful guest. He is our supreme director. But in each one of these chapters, as you get into it, he's talking about the purifying work of the Holy Spirit, the illumination of the mind by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that shows you what is consistent with God and what is not consistent with God. Finally, in this first portion, it talks about conformity of will. And ultimately, this is the action of the Holy Spirit, is to help us conform our will to God, both in desire and in methodology. And so, send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. That's These are ancient prayers. These are ancient prayers and sequences out of Pentecost. We forget, we want to say that once the Holy Spirit comes and the birth of the church is, is um, achieved, that we enter into an, uh, an ordinary time, a, a low period. And it's not. It's the apostolic age. It's the age of the Spirit among us, um, emboldening us, empowering us, but most of all, conforming us in desire and in will um, to, to be God. And then that third series, uh, the third stance, let us pray, O God who didst instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Does it say anything about uh, the cessation of suffering? Does it say anything about healing? Does it say anything about that? It does not. It says, grant us to be truly wise. What is wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge with a bruise. It is the ability to take life experience and apply it to a path to holiness. This is that director part where um, Archbishop Martinez says he is our supreme director, meaning the directives of the Holy Spirit, the desire to be sanctified for purpose. These have to be in the primacy in us. So, again, these prayers, while they sound comforting, um, these are violent prayers, because if you are not in conformity with God's will and you have things inconsistent with Christ and you pray these prayers, there's a violent response. It's a very uncomfortable response. Kyle, are any of these, uh, have you seen any of these prayers of the Holy Spirit 
being used in either the solemn rite or a minor exorcism? And are they very effective when the Holy Spirit is called upon, uh, down upon an energumen? Have you seen uh, the reaction of the energumen? Yes, very much, um, and, and in various ways. So here's a couple of ways. Number one is without the Holy Spirit, without this inspiration, without this, this presence of the Holy Spirit, there's no illumination. So the demon wants to keep you in darkness. He wants to keep you to where you're not realizing the areas of psychological compatibility, the habitual mortal sin. And so the Holy Spirit is like walking out of a cave into an operating room. There is a stark light. And if you've ever experienced this, I'm sure you have, most men have, is we begin to pray, Lord, help me be more like you. Show me the things. As soon as you pray, show me, the light comes on and you see all the cockroaches, you see the filth, and you see everything that is in your soul that's inconsistent with God. And then you think, okay, Lord, turn that down a little bit. Be gentle. Let me work on that. And then you get that work. Your eyes adjust to that light. And then you pray again, and he turns the light up even more. This is the purifying fire of the Holy Spirit. It is by the influence of the Holy Spirit that the soul of the energumen the, 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 and the psyche of the energumen stop asking, why is this happening to me? And begin to ask, how can I use it? How can I use it for my salvation, for my sanctity, for reparation, for the salvation of others? Once that shift is made and they're under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the demon's days are numbered. I like that. So the Holy Spirit gives the energumen the power to save instead of why, why me, why me? I need consolation. I need, I need, you know, I need healing. Now you're able, now the person is able to say, Lord, <laughs> use this pain and suffering. I unite my pain and suffering to your, to your cross on Calvary. Uh, I unite my pain and suffering to Our Lady of Sorrows for the, in reparation for my sins, the sins of my family. So the Holy Spirit, through the illumination of the mind, uh, you said it, he, it, he shifts the soul and the psyche so they can become now be really conforming themselves uh, and, and using their present situation as a means of, a, of, a, of, of redemptive suffering, correct? That's precisely right, and that's very well said. That's what Archbishop Martinez says, uh, chapter 16, and then in the summation of section one of this book is, once you can realize uh, conformity of will is going to be the primary focus, uh, and then the Holy Spirit is going to help show you where there is lack of conformity, once you make this shift, now you've actually set foot on the path to sanctity. You know, and Kyle, this just goes back to just ancient Catholic tradition, the whole you know, Colossians one twenty four. I, you know, I, I make up in my body what is lacking, uh, in, in, in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of His body, which is the church. I think uh, all of us has heard since we were toddlers. Our parents, our grandparents, have always told us, "Offer it up," and we seem to forget that. We we think that God wants everybody to be like they say in the TBN channel, uh, wealthy, healthy, and wise. That's just not true. That's a, that's a false gospel. That's an American gospel. That's a prosperity gospel. That's not the New Testament gospel. That's not the Catholic gospel. Uh, all of us are going to have to embrace some form of a cross. Some people's crosses are bigger, heavier, one inch longer, one inch shorter. But the fact is, nobody leaves planet Earth without suffering. And I think these prayers of the Holy Spirit are going to illuminate the person's mind to the point where they're going to say, okay, I get it. I get it. Lord, <laughs> sign me. Here I am. 
You're precisely right, Jesse. You are precisely right. And, and two observations. One is that wisdom comes at the loss of health and wealth. So it is non sequitur to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's not doable. True wisdom comes with the loss of health and the loss of wealth. Wow. And we're all going to get there, by the way, as uh, St. Maximilian Kolbe says, the three phases of the... Uh the three phases of the, of the person's life, you know, first, uh, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, you have, uh, the beginning phase of, you know, when we're, when we're kids and children, then we move to the apostolate, the, the, the apostolic works. And then we move into finally the later, latter stages of our life, which are suffering. Everybody's in, everybody's going to embrace. If you live to an extended period of time, everybody's going to enter into the ministry of suffering and that's when the Holy Spirit is doing most of his work, conforming us into the image and likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. Kyle, final comments? Two minutes. Yes, it, 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 just with regard to the Holy Spirit, um, I encourage you to look at that book study. Uh, it's not too late to join it. And then the other thing is is, is um, a big shift in the modern understanding of the Holy Spirit. Archbishop Martinez is very clear. He says the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for the purpose of sanctifying us. They're not a reward for achieving sanctity. When you receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that's in fact the indication that you need these in order to become sanctified, to use them for sanctification. And so there, this ancient understanding of the gifts and the application of the gifts is lost modernly. And it, what, we're, what most of us have is this under, modernist understanding, our misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit, who he is and how he works. Good stuff. You've been listening to Wednesday War College, Jess Romero, Kyle Clement. Here every single Wednesday. Sometimes we got Dan Snyder. Sometimes we got both. And uh, hey, Kyle, we want to thank you. What's the website where people can uh, access your information? www.montechristo.net Montechristo.net Montechristo.net Thank you very, very much, my friend. We'll see you next time. Uh, you're listening to thank the you, uh, Wednesday, Wednesday War College. Up next, Gary Machuda, Hands-On Apologetics. Coming to you from the Midwest Command Center. Uh, Wednesday War College, here's where we put the spotlight of truth upon this culture of death. Let's speak the truth to power and live without fear. And uh, let's all become like a lighthouse amidst the gathering storm. God bless you. Keep the faith. See you next time.